Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms of Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms of preteens, teens, and young adults. My mission is to first and foremost support and encourage you, mom, so that you can live well and reclaim your life. Two, this show will help you have the best possible relationships with your teens so that you can communicate, motivate, and guide them effectively and actually enjoy them. And third, I will bring you top-notch guests who will share the newest in adolescent research and trends so you can be prepared and aware of what your teens are facing today. Always you will leave each episode armed with practical parenting tips. Welcome back, everyone, to the 247th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms the Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. How much of your relationship with your teen is trying to get them to see your way and having them change their mind? How many arguments do you get into because they argue back and you can't get them to change their mind? How many of you feel like your tween or teen is stubborn? I am so excited to share this episode with you. Our guest today is an Australian gem. His specialty is how to persuade stubborn people. And I think teens fall under that category and may be the most stubborn of all. In his recently published book, Mind Stuck, he gives us 15 persuasion tools. Michael McQueen has spent the past two decades helping organizations and leaders win the battle for relevance. From Fortune 500 brands to government agencies and not-for-profits, Michael specializes in helping clients navigate uncertainty and stay one step ahead of change. He is a best-selling author of 10 books and is a familiar face on the international conference circuit, having shared the stage with the likes of Bill Gates, Dr. John Maxwell, and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Michael has spoken to hundreds of thousands of people across five continents since 2004 and is known for his high-impact, research-rich, and entertaining conference presentations. Having formally been named Australia's Keynote Speaker of the Year, Michael has been inducted into the Professional Speakers Hall of Fame. He and his family live in Sydney, Australia. Welcome, Michael McQueen. Thank you so much. Great to spend some time chatting. Yes, and I'm so glad that you made time for me today. So the first question I ask all my guests is, are you a parent? And if so, what are the ages of your kids? Yes, I'm a dad of an eight-year-old boy. So we're at that stage where... That's a fun age. I find seven and eight is a great age where they've got their own personality. They're asking good questions, but they still you know, they still think you're pretty cool as the parent. That's fun. You know, they still think you've got some things to offer. And I, I'm fully aware that that can change in the next stage of life, which will probably, I guess, feed into our conversation say, the little boy that's eight and he's an absolute joy. This stage is great. Oh, that's wonderful. So you recently published a book called Mind Stuck, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds. And I think every mom listening is going to love this episode <laughs> because it's hard to get a teenager or young adult to change minds. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about the background of the book and why you wrote it? Yes, this book actually took almost a decade to write. So this is the 10th book that I've written, but it would be honestly the hardest one I've sort of sunk my teeth into because there's just so many avenues you can go into around this stuff. And I guess the genesis moment of this book was a number of conversations I had with clients over the years. So I spend most of my time 
in corporate land, helping leaders and organizations figure out what are the changes that are coming they've got to get ready for. And I, had, I remember one particular conversation I had following a presentation at a conference and this woman said, like, I get it. I can see what's changing for us. I can see that if we don't shift really fast, we've got five or maybe six years before we're out of business. Just that I, but my biggest challenge is how do I get my leadership team on board? Like, how do I get them to be open to the idea? They're so rigid, so stuck in their ways. And when I asked her, well, what have you tried? She told me the things she, you know, the tools she'd employed to try and get through to her bosses. And I'm like, these are all the things we're told to do, but I haven't worked. And that's a common theme I've seen so many times. And conversations kept coming up with people who are doing all the right things to try and change other people's minds, but they were getting nowhere. And so essentially, this book was an attempt to answer that question of, like, why do people change even when they want to and know they should? I mean, mm-hmm. what are some of the latest studies we've seen happen from a behavioral economics and behavioral psychology standpoint? What do they reveal about what it actually takes to shift someone who's really rigid in a way of thinking or operating? And often it's really different to what we would expect or assume might be the case. Yeah, your book is full of just really fun research and it's surprising. So it's a great book. Well, that's very encouraging. I'd be fascinated with someone who's spent so many years in this space, you know, what it is to you that what was surprising, because that's what I always find most interesting, because in a way I'm coming at this with somewhat fresh eyes. I mean, this is an area of research that I've spent the last five to 10 years really sinking my teeth into, but there are others like you who've been living and breathing this for decades in some cases. I'm always curious to see what resonated, but also what things are like, wow, I'd never even thought of it that way before or seen it from that perspective. So that's super encouraging. Yeah. Well, I think one thing is that, I mean, it's humbling, is that I can leave a session thinking, wow, I really changed them. And then your percentages of people who actually changed their minds was kind of sobering. It is, isn't it? And so to me, the numbers do speak pretty loudly in this regard. So I think there was a Cornell University study a few years ago that found that um, only 3 to 5% of our attempts to change someone's mind are actually successful. And sometimes people will pretend that they've changed their opinion. They'll politely go along with what you've said. But has their mind actually really changed? Have they been persuaded to shift their viewpoint or their understanding of the issue? And it sort of goes back to that Dale Carnegie quote from his book, Pattern Friends Influence People, that now, someone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And so, you know, often attempts to try and persuade those in our world, be it our kids or those in the workplace or our partner or our spouse or those in our family, we think we've, you know, gotten through to them, but sometimes they're just being polite. And then they walk away and nothing has actually changed. If they don't feel they've been in charge of that process, if they're not in the driver's seat, there's often that sense that they'll just go along with what they're expected to say or do. Yeah. Or a lot of times the teenagers will not go along with what you say and do. <laughs> and you know it very clearly. Uh-huh. So I love this, the psychology of stubbornness, which mm. just kind of makes me laugh. I think every mom listening could think of their teens in that category. So what do you mean by the psychology of stubbornness? And what does this look like in our teens? You know, what I wanted to look at was what actually happens in people's brains when they get sort of very rigid or stuck or obstinate in a certain way of thinking. and. To understand that, I think you've sort of got to go back to look at how our brains actually arrive at points of certainty. Now, it's when you, you know, you'll say something like, I've made up my mind about X, Y, or Z. What happened? How did you get there? Like, what actually occurred in the process of you making up your mind? And it's often not the linear, logical, reasoned process we'd like to imagine. And for centuries, we've had this idea that, you know, fundamentally, humans are reasonable. Teenagers, less so, because there's a whole you know, a whole concoction of hormones playing out there as well. But like truly this notion that humans are reasonable, if you just give them enough evidence and logic and you know, a good argument, 
then they'll come to their senses, they'll see the light and they'll change their minds. That's, of course, not how it works. And what I wanted to look at is what actually happens in people's brains. And if you look at there are two different minds or two different essentially operating systems that function when we're you know, thinking, reasoning, forming perceptions. And so the first of these is the inquiry mind, which is the bit right at the front of our brains, the frontal lobe, very rational, reasonable, linear way of thinking. And now we do have that capacity to be rational and reasonable. The challenge is that even the most well-adapted adults only use their inquiry mind for 5 to 10% of their thinking and values formation. Most of our thinking actually happens in our instinctive mind, which is that part of our brain near the top of the brain, in the limbic system, a lot of the brain functions associated with that. So it's the part of our brain that is responsible for processing emotion and for our flight and fight reflexes. It's very tribal and it's very impulsive, you know, it jumps to conclusions. And so the challenging thing is if you're trying to change someone's mind, which mind are you trying to get through to? And stubbornness typically resides in that second mind, that instinctive mind. And most of our attempts to change someone's thinking focus on the frontal lobe one, that they inquiry mind. We try and give them logic and evidence without realizing it's like you're speaking the wrong language. And the harder you push, and you probably everyone listening will know this sensation. The harder you push, the more arguments you give, the more evidence you pile on, the more stubborn they get. And so therefore a lot of the book is looking at how does that instinctive mind work and how do you speak to it? How do you yes. give people that ability to change that that mind? Yes. Well the first book I wrote was called Dial Down the Drama. Uh reducing conflict and reconnecting with your teenage teenager and yeah because that's what I think what happens is that you want to change their minds and they're just sassing back and so you get louder and louder and louder and it just spins into drama and you don't no one changes their minds at that point correct yeah I mean and often one of the keys to change anyone's mind is to know when it's the right time now what's the right moment and this goes back to one of the sort of the foundational elements of rhetoric, which was the original study of you know, influence or persuasion right back in the ancient Greek times, where the word they were used is this word um, kairos. And kairos was about timing, like choosing the right time to present your message. And sometimes if there's so much drama involved, if there's shouting and bashing of doors, the people's amygdalas, which is that fight and flight part of their brain, which is core to their instinctive mind, it is firing big time. This is not the moment to have a reasonable conversation. And so now sometimes it's about choosing the moment, you know, choosing, this is probably not the right time or not the right day, let's circle back tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or one of the things we, that I came across in the research was if you want to really diffuse those tense situations, sometimes the best and simplest thing you can do is go for a walk. Because going for a walk side by side with someone, and a guy named Paul Zach, who's a neuroeconomist, who's looked at how our bodies produce oxytocin, which is the social bonding hormone where trust and affinity are built. He looks at the importance of synchronizing our behaviors and our actions. And sometimes that's, mm. I think, really awkward. Like, I don't know if you've heard the advice like I have. And I've mirror someone's body language. And, you know, if they cross their legs, you cross your legs. And like, it just, it's always a bit contrived. It doesn't seem to sit well with a lot of people, me included. But I was chatting with Paul about this, and he said, one of the simplest ways to synchronize is go for a walk because when you're walking side by side with someone, you eventually match their cadence. You get in step and you start to mirror their pace and their movement. And when that happens, if you look at what occurs in our brains, essentially there's a neural connection like a mind meld that occurs when you are in sync with someone else. And so sometimes the simplest thing you can do is just get out, go for a walk, not sit opposite each other, having the conversation or shouting across the lounge room. And so yeah, sometimes even very simple things like that can diffuse these things that mean we don't get through and our messages fall flat or we just walk straight into argument after argument. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. 
It's so simple, but it makes so much sense. Yeah. I love that. And it's real practical. I've heard a lot of moms try to do is they think driving in the car is a great time to have these conversations, but that's not the same as getting in sync with the walking. And plus teens are usually really stressed out after school. Yep. So again, that's not the right time. Yep. I mean, stressed out or just tired and hungry. Like that sense of, now they're in that emotionally depleted state. And none of us, none of us are thinking well and in that stage or that yes. state. But in particular, yes. our teenagers, because as we all well know, the brain development means that our frontal lobe isn't fully developed until sort of 23, 24, age 25, somewhere around there. So not only do, you know, as humans, we not use that inquiry mind as much, for young people, it hasn't even properly developed yet. So, you know, we've got to be very mindful of what we're expecting of our kids. We're often expecting our kids and our teens, even those in their early 20s, to be probably more responsible or more able to respond rationally than they actually can. And so to cut them some slack, you know, give them some grace and realize that it can just take time and it takes different tactics than it might take if you were dealing with an adult around exactly the same issue. Yes, that's so good. I kind of joke around with parents, but I'm kind of not joking. I call it adolescent logic. And so adolescent logic is not logical. Yeah. But parents have an assumption it is logical because yep. the adolescent's logic is really, I want to go to the party. You know, I want that dress. I want to stay out later. I want my phone. Mm-hmm. So they'll throw out whatever mm-hmm. to kind of derail you from the main issue. Yep. And it gets all crazy. Absolutely. And so this is like listening through, not listening to people. You know, what do they actually really say? Not What are the words they're presenting? And this is probably one of the keys, I think, for any of us, if you want to change someone's mind or influence them, is have you actually stopped to genuinely understand what they're saying? And what is the fear? What's the emotion that underpins what they're presenting to you? Because sometimes they're presenting with defiance or anger, and it's got nothing to do with that at all. And yet when we deal with the primary emotion, the thing that we think they presented to us or we just haven't had the time, all the energy to stop and really listen, or even ask the questions to get them to a point where they really know what's going on for them. I mean, so many of our young people, they've got this mixture of emotions and hormones that means they can't even pin down what their feelings are at the moment. And so they're playing out of these instinctive reactions. And sometimes it takes a bit of coaching them to go, what's actually going on for you right now? And sort of helping them retrace their steps and figure out what the emotions are, because They'll often go through very simplistic emotions like, yeah, this just sucks or it's not fair or I'm just, I'm angry or they'll use other words. And yet actually underneath that, there's often you know, very much more complex and nuanced emotions. They're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling isolated from their friends. They're feeling fragile in, in social media. They're feeling you know, lonely at their job because no one understands them. And these are all more complicated, nuanced emotions. But if they can't pin those down, then they just reach for the simplistic ones. And so if you respond to the simplistic ones, you're not actually dealing with the same issue. And you're not going to the core and the heart of why they may be resistant or playing out the way they are. And so sometimes it's really taking the time to listen and having discernment to ask questions to help them figure out what's actually going on for them right now. And then hopefully in the process, you get a clear sense of what's going on too so you can have an honest conversation. So you know, they're simple things, but they're not necessarily easy to do. Right. Okay. This is gold. So I want to kind of dive into this a little bit more. So the teen who's just you know, you just hate me and you don't care about my life sort of thing. What are some of the questions that a parent can ask to get to more complex emotions? I think for them to really figure out exactly how they're feeling and what might have contributed to what's happening in their world. 
And sometimes that means just taking the time to have those conversations and let those things bubble up to the surface because if they're complicated emotions, sometimes it takes time for them to reveal themselves. The other one is sometimes they're embarrassed. They're embarrassed to share what's actually going on for them because they think they're the first and they think they're the worst. And sometimes the best thing as a parent you can do is just be really vulnerable about what's going on for you and what's happening in your life and stuff that's, that's difficult. And it's tricky because you don't want to editorialize this too much and you know, share your stories. But when I was your age, this is what happened with me because, of course, that's the instant eye roll reflex from teenagers. Like, you wouldn't understand because you grew up in the dark ages. You know, this whole notion, they don't really think we get their world, which yeah. makes perfect sense. But by really honestly and vulnerably sharing what's going on for you and what some of those difficult emotions for you have been like in stories and situations that play out, it's almost like you give them permission to realize, again, they're not the first and they're not the worst. And sometimes feeling safe is all our young people need. Like feeling safe that if they bring something up, you're not going to blame them or you're not going to shame them or ostracize them or reject them. And the reality is there's very little that our kids can say that will shock us. And yet they think that there's a very narrow band of things they can talk about because, you know, we wouldn't understand, you know, because, of course, we were never young just like they are. And things were so different back in the day. The reality is most parents, we've been around the block a few times. We've seen a few <laughs> things. And I think just letting kids know that they are safe, safe to be honest and vulnerable, that's the most important thing we can do. I love that. And I love that they're not the first and they're not the worst. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah is- that's because of how their brains are developmentally. That's where they go to. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's that. And then you think about what's compounding that for young people today. I mean, they jump on Instagram or on TikTok and everyone else's life just seems so wonderful and glamorous because it's curated. And I heard it said recently, I thought it was so insightful, this idea that you've got a generation who are comparing their behind the scenes footage with everyone else's highlight reel and wondering why they're feeling like they're not sort of making the grade. And I think for a lot of us as parents, just recognizing that for our kids, they may seem really confident. And even they'll present with that brash, not arrogance even, but that sense that they've got it all figured out and they don't need you. That's actually the very opposite emotion of what's actually going on for them. They're worried, they're scared, they're anxious. They're desperately looking for that sense of security and acceptance and just unconditional love and grace. And sometimes if we can just offer those things to our kids, they may not respond immediately, but if you're consistent in offering those things, you create an environment where they can be honest with you. And when there's honest communication, that solves almost all the problems. Yeah. All right. So I know kind of the parents, parents can fall into the trap of thinking like when the parent starts to get dysregulated and they feel like if I get really angry, like if I threaten, if I name call, then I can get through to them. Then I can get them to see my point. Can you tell us why that doesn't work? I mean, from a simple perspective, the posture of two people having a conversation, like you and I were face-to-face right now, and I leaned toward you and kept speaking, your instinctive reaction would be to step back. Mm-hmm. That sense of, I'd be, I'd be crowding you out. And we do that physically in conversations. Like everyone knows a close talker. You know, those people who just take up way too much personal space. And I like, just calm down, dude. Like you see that physically happen, but we do that emotionally and conversationally as well. And sometimes in our rush to bring energy in to emphasize our point, our young person feels like they retreat, they have to retreat. There's that sense of I've got to put up defiance or I've got to put up my defensiveness. And so being mindful of even the posture we go into a conversation with, and it's not just going to be as simple as going to a conversation just with a genuine sense of humility. Like you've got something you want to get through, an idea, a perspective, something you'd like them to consider. And just prefacing that with things like, hey, I might be way off here. 
for what it's worth, this is my sense about the situation. And like just prefacing with that because that models humility. Now, if you want your young people to engage honestly and humbly and be willing to think out loud and be vulnerable, model it as the parent. They'll meet you like the like. And sometimes there's also this competitive dynamic that creeps in. And I saw this funny meme on Instagram a few weeks ago. And this um, mum had posted this. She said, you know, whenever my daughter says, I love you, I always say, I love you more. Because she needs to know that life is competitive and mum will always win. And I laughed, but I'm like, so many parents do that. Like, I've got to get the last word. I've got to win the argument. And yet, mm-hmm. all that does is set up your know, parenting and your know, parent-child relationship as a competition. And so, what are they thinking? Next time I'll win. Next time I'm going to get on top of it. Or I won't mm-hmm. let you feel like you've won. And so, nothing constructive ever comes from that. And so, one of the metaphors I use in the book is, do we see arguments and debates as a battle or a dance? Because good uh-huh. debates are a dance. And I mean, think about a good dance. A beautiful dance routine is two people moving in unison, a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps back. I gain ground, you gain ground. That's actually, unless we get in sync, then nothing beautiful or constructive comes from that. And sometimes in the debate or an argument with your kids, you'll say things, they'll say something back and you go, you know what, that's actually a really good perspective. I can as a parent, maybe I need to learn from that. Maybe there's something that you've shared that as a 16-year-old, that even though you're much younger than I am and I'm the parent, I've not thought of it that way. That's a really good point. And you can mm-hmm. just be honest enough to go, thank you. That's a perspective I hadn't thought of before. I'd like to give that some thought. I just to be honest. If we, want to, if we want our young people to be honest and listen, mm-hmm. are we willing to do the same? You know, mm-hmm. that idea that people who are listened to are more likely to listen. And so often we don't model the very attitude of a posture we want our young people to have, which is to be open and willing to listen and willing to engage. When we don't model that as parents, is it any wonder that they don't? And so that idea of, is it a battle, a case of wanting to win at all costs, or is it a dance where now we're going to go in sync here and learn something together? I love this. And I'm completely on your side and preach the same thing in my book. Okay, for the parent who feels like I need to win this battle so that I kind of maintain the power because I'm the parent, Mm. you know, because I think that's so strong in parents, like, I can't lose this battle because I am the parent. Yep. Well, how would you speak to that? Well, it depends on the age. And this is where I think if you've got a kid who's 13 or 14, there's an extent to which, you know, I mean, what's the transition of kids? They go from dependent to independent to interdependent. And so if you're in that dependent stage, up until a certain age, they are dependent on you. You've got to be the one that sets boundaries and maps those very clear and enforces them to an extent because there's boundaries where safety is like the number one game. So they may think, hey, it's going to be great, it's going to be fun. Be like, it's actually not. And if you do this, there's going to be a consequence. So at that point, you need to actually put your foot down. And it might not be a case of winning, but making boundaries very clear and making clear why the boundary is there. And if your young person fights back and pushes back, it's like, why do you imagine I'm asking you to do this? Like, why do you imagine that I'm enforcing this boundary? Like, just get them to think out loud. I'm not doing this to be annoying or unreasonable. I mean, firstly, check yourself, is that true? Like, if you are just putting this in place because it's just the way you would like things to be. Check your own heart. They're like, how much is this a case of having power and dominance? Or is it really for the benefit of the young person? But that's if you're at the stage of dependence. Then when you move into independence, which is like they're trying to find their own identity. They're trying to find their own sense of self. And so if you're trying to win, trying to trounce in every argument or enforce every boundary, it is going to have the opposite effect. It'll push you away and it ruins the relationship. It ruins trust. It ruins affinity. And once trust or affinity is gone, the game's over. And so... There are times where like 16, 17, 18, what do you need to do? And this is the hardest thing. And I say this to someone who hasn't been through this yet. Like I haven't seen this. 
as a parent myself. But one of the things I did early on, the first couple of books I wrote were around the generation gap. And so I was working with parents day after day, week after week in school settings who are trying to understand their millennial kids and their Gen Z kids. And so I've seen this play out over 10 or 15 years of like when I see when you see parents hold the line and enforce unreasonable boundaries at age 15, 16, 17, it just backfires time and time again. Mm-hmm. And so there's a point at which what's required well, two things, trust and grace. Mm-hmm. Like trust that you actually just let them, like give them enough rope, give them enough of a, a leash to make some mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be painful for them mm-hmm. and it's going to be painful for you. Mm-hmm. But also then what happens after they give them grace to realize once they've made mistakes, they don't come back to you and it's like, see, I told you. All right, yeah. If you just listened to me, because of course, what does that do? That just, that just piles on shame. And so mm-hmm. that sense of giving them grace to realize that when they make mistakes, they're actually just learning. And they're just 16 years old, 17 years old. And you probably did the same thing yourself. It just wasn't documented on Instagram when you were young. Right? <laughs> and so I think giving them grace. And then obviously when they get to that next stage and that sort of early 20s stage, now they're moving into interdependence. Like they're now coming back to you and seeing you ideally, the relationship has been preserved. They're seeing you as someone they want to connect with and listen to and engage with in the journey of life. That's the next mm-hmm. goal as you get to that point. Mm-hmm. So it depends where, what age your kid's at, of course, how you do this. But I would say at every point, starting with, you know, the goal is the relationship first. Mm-hmm. Do you, mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to make a point or do you want to make a difference with the young person? That's a question we've got to ask because you can make a point, you can enforce mm-hmm. a boundary, but if it's kind of the cost of the relationship, like who's actually really won? I think Andy Stanley, who's a leadership yes. expert based here in the States, he put it beautifully where he said, in any relationship, when one party wins, the relationship loses. And that's yeah. just so true. So a lot of the book looks at how do you effectively put your ideas forward and try and persuade people without encroaching on their dignity and their sense of agency or autonomy. Because the moment that happens, no one wins. Right. I interviewed Sandra Stanley on my podcast. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yes. And she talked about parenting with the relationship in mind. It was wonderful, which is what I believe also. And I just love that conversation can be a dance. And I also think if we just trump every single idea that our kids have, then we're not building confidence in them either. And if we have the humility to say, that's a really interesting perspective. Let me think about that. Mm. That's very powerful. Exactly. We're not building resilience, but we're also not building within them the capacity to think for themselves and think well. The goal is to teach them the process of being a proper grown-up human. And what does that mean? We want to give them the ability to have a lens to look at life through that is constructive and helpful and true. And so, you know, for instance, if your young person is caught up in behaviors, like in a group setting, because we know, of course, peer pressure and that group dynamic is so critical at that age, where mm-hmm. you can't just say, don't do that because your friends are doing it and it's dumb. Like the moment you say that, what do they want to do? I want to do exactly what my friends are doing because you're the parent, they're my friends, they're more important to me at age 15 than my parents are. And so, like, that's not going to play out. You mean asking them a question like, let's say there's a behavior that's playing out and you want to say, how do you hope this is going to play out? Like, If you go along with your group and do everything they're doing, how do you hope this is going to play out? Or how do you imagine this is going to play out? And they won't give an answer probably in the moment, but they will answer themselves. If they just stop and think, if I do what everyone else around me is doing, is this going to work out well? Um, the moment you say, how do you think this is going to play out, that can seem a bit accusatory. So you just want to say, how do you hope, or how do you imagine this is going to play out? And hopefully they get to a point where they go, oh, probably not well, actually. And they won't say that to you, but you let the question linger. Just because the question didn't get an answer in the moment didn't mean it didn't work. And mm-hmm. so asking questions in a way that just allows them to 
go through the process of reflecting is we reckon that's half the battle. They're the skills that we want our young people to be learning. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, because there's a huge difference between how do you think, which can sound very judgmental, yeah, and how do you imagine, which is, feels yeah. way more open-ended. That's right. Yeah, really great. Sure. All right. You talk about the compulsion to conform. So what drives this need to conform to others and our kids, and how can we counter that in healthy ways? Well, I think certainly I'm acknowledging that it's such a big deal that for young people, and it's for all of us, really. I mean, we're so tribal in our instincts. You know, we're always looking to see what are people like us doing? What are people like us thinking? What are the choices they are making? And that sort of informs the decisions we make and the things that we think. And so I think for all of us, we're prone to that because it's just part of human nature. But for our young people, when they move into that independence stage, so they go from dependence to independence, one of the key hallmarks, of course, is they define their identity by the friends they're with. And so the challenge, of course, is what happens when your kids get in with a group and I mean, we all hope and pray that doesn't happen, but sometimes it just does. They get in with a group that you just know are doing things and thinking things that are just not going to play well. And in fact, it's going to be destructive and dangerous. So in that case, sometimes it's difficult for you to be the parent to suggest that. And sometimes this is where, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. You know, who are the people around your kid that you can be having their stable, solid influences? And this is uncles, aunts, sports coaches, youth leaders. But making sure that you approach this strategically in a way, because if your kid's involved in stuff, it's not going to work that well for them. Sometimes you as a parent, you need to be there to play a support role. You need other people to have that hard conversation with your kids. I mean, sometimes you have the whole role of unconventional ambassadors. In other words, people who are ambassadors for an idea that you wouldn't necessarily think. So like it might be the uncle who actually, when he was young, did a lot of the dumb things your kid is now doing. But like your kid looks up to that uncle. And so that uncle can speak into their life and into those issues in ways that you can't. Mm-hmm. So trying to fight against that conformity compulsion, it ain't going to work. I mean, there's that sense of my friends and my identity at this age is, is acutely strong. But how do you have people around them so that they've still got a sense of support in a community that isn't just that group of friend community? And so I think it's tricky for all of us to not mm-hmm. be herd driven, particularly for our young people. Yeah, for sure. So what do we typically get wrong in trying to guide our children towards certain decisions? I think a lot of the things we've touched on really speak to that, that idea of seeing it as a competition, trying to always have the last word or being the one who always wins the argument. But I think also just that sense of wanting our kids to do what we say just because it's what we say or what we expect. And I think we've got to check ourselves in this and look at, are our expectations reasonable? You know, sometimes, like I think about this even with our own little boy. So he's eight and he's growing up in a world that is a bit different from what I knew. I mean, we didn't have iPads. Gaming was pretty primitive. Like we had like the games you plugged into a television set and had cartridges. And so I look at him and my instant reflex is to go, video games are going to be a waste of your time and they're addictive. And they can be, but I'm also mindful that one of the things I could actually set up right from the outset is saying, you know, by just ruling this off entirely and saying, this is not something we do in our household, his defensive response will kick in. He's be like, well, why not? My friends at school are. So how do we, how do we then set boundaries? And my role as the parent then is to actually have the humility to go and you go, just because this is maybe the way I'd like it to be, is that fair or reasonable? Or is it just because that's what I knew growing up? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things we've got to be super mindful of is just how many of our expectations are reasonable but also are we delivering them or enforcing them, even though enforcing probably not the right word, in a way that is reasonable? You know, do we have an open posture or is it like, do this because I said you've got it? Because, of course, that's going to always spark that defensive reflex. Yeah, for sure. So how can we use questions as a form of persuasion in our parenting? And what kind of questions work best? 
Well, there's, I mean, so many different ones we could do. Ideally, you want to have a question that makes you a young person think. We've talked about a couple of examples of ways that you can do that. But one of the tools that I came across that I write about in the book, I actually learned from a professor at Yale named Michael Pantalon. And so Michael Pantalon's been using this approach in dealing with particularly dangerous or destructive behaviors around drug and alcohol abuse for um, decades. And so the clinical term for this is called a motivational interviewing. The way I describe it is a little bit more you know, relaxed or less clinical than that. So I call it the rate and reflect approach. This idea of when you've got something you want to have your young person consider doing or thinking, the thing you ask two questions in a very specific order and using this sort of very specific wording. The first question is, hey, so from one to 10, how likely or open are you to, and then fill in the blank, whatever you want to ask your young person to consider doing or thinking. And they'll give an answer. And typically, if they're stubborn and fixed in a certain way of doing things, and they're just natural postures that I want to do because you've suggested it, they'll give you a low number, like two or three. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. The next question then in this process is, hey, so I'm curious, how come you didn't choose a lower number? And in that moment, <laughs> the whole conversation happened. Because now it's not about all the reasons why you don't want to do what I'm suggesting, because, hey, there's eight out of ten reasons there, but you don't have this. It's just a part of you that does think maybe there's something worthwhile to consider. And I'm not going to suggest you have to do it, but I'm just curious. Like, is there even the tiniest part of you that can see why this might be a good idea? And you start there. I love it. In your book, you have all these wonderful tools. Can you pick out a few of them that moms would really appreciate? I think one of the you, ones that would, yeah. Well, the it's first called, one, your section yeah. is called a toolkit for persuading stubborn people, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something that's the goal, isn't it, really? And so I think out of the 15, and there's a few that I think would be really relevant from a parenting perspective or in this okay. new context. And the first one will be making sure that you're allowing people to feel in the driver's seat of control. So allow for autonomy. And Sheena Iyengar, who's a okay. professor at Columbia, she says, you know, the human brain will be, we create choice with having control. And the moment we feel like we haven't got control or choices, we will push back. We'll dig our heels in, even if what's being suggested to us is something that we would like to do or can see value in doing. So this can be as simple as like with your kids, giving them guided choices. Like, okay, you've got two or three choices. Which would you like to do? But it's up to you. Okay, now, of course, those two or three choices are ones that you know will be constructive and healthy and helpful and lead to something ideally that you want them to move towards, but they at least still get a chance to choose. And so even if it's a case of like, just tell me what time you can be home tonight, just so I know. I'm not going to enforce it for you, but tell me what time. If you give me a time, if they feel they've had control over the time that they suggest, they're far more likely to stick to it because it was the time they suggested as opposed to you've got to be home by 10. And so I think that's probably the most important thing is just giving people that, that ability to feel like they're in the driver's seat. Another thing I look at in the book is this idea of lessening the loss. And we often have this assumption that human beings by their very nature are afraid of change. And that's actually not true. If you look at what's the most recent research from a neuroscience standpoint will suggest that it's not change that we're afraid of, it's loss. And so the moment that what you're asking of someone or suggesting to someone makes them feel like they may lose something in the process, they might be losing dignity or power or Mm -hmm. certainty, that's when they dig their heels in. And so how do you lessen that loss? So in some cases, lessening uncertainty can be as simple as making clear what you're asking them to do. Because if there's a sense of, I don't know how this is meant to work, and once things change, I'll be out of my depth. Again, that's when people dig their heels in. But also that sense of dignity is, is critical. You know, giving them that sense of, you know, by changing their mind, they don't have to admit they're an idiot because they mm-hmm. change their perspective. And yet we often do that people in the corner where they feel 
that they need to do that. They need to almost admit that I was wrong and you were right. And of course, that's the very thing that people won't do if they're forced into a corner like that. I think the last key that would be so critical with this group is to really focus on affinity and then focus on building trust. And we've spoken about that a number of times throughout the conversation mm-hmm. here, and that's yeah. really the end game here. And so mm-hmm. what do we need to do if we're going to build trust? One of the most important things we can do as parents is just be vulnerable, mm-hmm. be honest. In fact, there's some really interesting research I look at in the book. There was a meta-analysis of legal cases and points in those legal cases where the jury was swayed to favor one side's argument over another. The interesting thing was most of the time the reason the jury was swayed to one side over the other was because the attorney in question was upfront and acknowledged to the jury that they didn't have all the information or all the answers or even they acknowledged ideas or evidence that might work against their own case. Because the beauty was what it did is it essentially disarmed the jury because instead of sitting there looking for the holes, trying to pick the holes in the argument, the person putting the argument forward was like, you know, there are some things here that it's complex. It's not just black and white. There's areas of gray. And the moment that happens, you are then perceived as being forthright, open, honest, objective, fair. And so as a parent, how do you do the same thing? How do you, you know, self-deprecation, self-disclosure, saying you don't have all the answers, you don't have all the information. And that sort of posture of openness and vulnerability is often the very thing that disarms those we're trying to speak with or persuade, and it makes them far more open to what it is we're trying to get across. That's so true. Like, I remember with my daughter, she's now 27, but we'd be in arguments before I wrote my book. (laughs) 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 I said, I was therapist for 14 years, and I completely lost it with my daughter. And I said, ah, what's going on here? I mean, I know this stuff. So of course, the neuroscience was very helpful. But it was the same thing. What I found is some big incident would happen. And I, of course, thought my daughter was 100% wrong. But I had to look for what's my I'm not going to admit that I had a lot to do with it, but I'm looking for my 1%. What's my 1%? Yeah. And I can say I was angry or I was judgmental or I was afraid. And every single time that I would do that, and I just said, you know what? You're right. I was judgmental and I was angry. And that probably felt really bad. Every time I did that, my daughter, who had been very rigid, she just completely opened up. I'm sorry, yeah. mom, because I was this and this and this. And then yeah. we had this amazing conversation. Yeah. And it's beautiful because it models what you're hoping to see. Yeah. That sense of just being open, being honest, being vulnerable, being humble. I mean, that's what we really want is people who are humble in their approach to thinking, where they're willing to rethink stuff that they would otherwise like to dig their heels in around. That's the ideal for all of us as humans, but particularly with our young people. Yeah. I mean, they see us pretty clearly. I think sometimes more than we see ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like just us stating the obvious, I was really stressed or I was really angry and mm. it probably came off. They're like, well, thank God you saw that. Yep. But when we pretend like that didn't happen, they lose trust. Yeah. I think yeah, that sense of honesty because a finely tuned BS meter, they know when you're just making it up or like they read us well. They read us like a book often. And so mm-hmm. just being upfront, being open and being transparent and vulnerable, it just takes the heat out of the situation. That's really the goal in most of these things, particularly in those tense situations, is what are you doing that's inflaming it and what are you doing that is diffusing the situation? And the more you can do the latter rather than the former, the more likely you are to arrive at a constructive outcome. Yeah. Oh, this is so helpful. So what last advice do you have for the moms listening? I would say if we take something really simple like asking questions, you know, the simplest thing you can do is just be mindful of the wording that you use. 
And if you start a question with the word why, what you instantly set up is that adversarial situation that becomes an battle. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why did you do that? For instance, you ask your kid that and you back them into a corner, they've got to justify themselves now and it becomes that battle. And so you know, using words like what or how instead of why instantly changes the tone. So like now, what made you do that? I'm curious. Just, I'm curious to understand. Help me understand here. Like just even the wording we use can make the biggest difference. So I would just say, check your own heart and your own attitude as you go into the situations. Is it about winning or is it about progress? And then what can you do? What's the posture that you can adopt? And also the questions you can ask, the wording you can use that will enable your young person to be open, but also mainly because you've modeled that from the outset, being open and vulnerable yourself. Yes. I love curiosity. And so I would say it's even more than the word. Mm. It's really putting yourself in a position of being curious. Yeah. That's great. Absolutely. You know, it's like you are curious because if you just see it, it's this or this, then that conversation is not going to go well. But if you internally actually are curious, then they feel that. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. I love that. The word curiosity is a beautiful word. Hey? Yes, it is. You know, I always, I kind of joke with the moms, like when I'm speaking about what our kids want is what, you know, every couple wants like we want to be understood and we don't want to be told what to do we don't want to be fixed but if someone is really curious about our day or really trying to understand our day we soften yep you know it's all, yeah it's all about dignity we just treat people with dignity it's amazing that, that brings out the best in human nature hey that's so good dignity yes and our teens deserve dignity i'm just going to say that out loud Sometimes I think like, parents feel like, well, our teens don't even deserve dignity, but yes, they do. Mm, yep, absolutely. Yes, we all do. And we, of course, we as parents and moms, we deserve dignity also. So this book, Mind Stuck, which is just great, Mastering the Art of Changing Minds by Michael McQueen. I'm sure they can get that wherever books are sold. Indeed, yeah, for sure. And how can moms reach you if they're curious and want to know more? You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or if you go to mindstuck.net, there's details about the book and about me. I'm up on that website. Well, thank you so much for your time. And this has been so helpful. I'm so glad. Thank you for making the time. And thanks for, well, thank you for being curious. I mean, that's, you've modeled the very thing that you, to your own point, is the key. So thanks for being so curious. And thanks for a great conversation. I hope it's been useful. Oh. It's very useful. It's lovely. Well, enjoy the rest of the day. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my award-winning, best-selling books, Gow Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, and my newest release book, Dial Up the Dream, Making Your Daughter's Journey to Adulthood the Best for Both of You. You can find both of these books wherever books are sold. And you can find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, and that has two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.